and welcome to Spotlight with Sandhya. Our guest today is an inventor with over a hundred patents to his name. He is a serial entrepreneur, an engineer, and more importantly for India, he is responsible for the communication revolution that connected all of India through telephones and which led to the IT revolution and for India becoming the global IT giant it is today. Let's welcome Sam Pitroda to the show. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. I remember when we had to wait for a long time to book a telephone call, a trunk call as we used to call it. And then it became so easy for us to do so. Cell phones or mobile phones are so ubiquitous today. I'm interested to know what's your feeling when you come to India and you look at everybody having a telephone now. Well, you know, when I started my work in India, essentially in 1981, after meeting Mrs. Indira Gandhi, who gave me an opportunity to come back and work on it, we had about 2 million telephones for then 700 million people. It used to take 10 years to get a telephone connection. In a short span of 30 years, we have 1.2 billion phones. We are a country of connected billion. And at the same time, we generate $200 billion worth of software services in export. So we have come a long way in IT and telecom. And I would say a lot of credit goes to Rajiv Gandhi for his political will to really give us courage to go things that we needed to do. Two, lot of young Indian talent, students coming out of IIT and other universities with lots of energy and who gave their life working in the early days. And then Indian entrepreneurs, policymakers. So I think everything came together to really change the face of India. I remember when I gave a presentation to Mrs. Indira Gandhi in 1981, my main message was, we can indeed change India if we connect India and focus on IT and software. I must give her credit that she believed in this vision because then the vision was really all about indigenous development, local production, human resource building, using Indian model of development like STD PCOs in early days and not follow Western model of improving telephone density but focus on improving access. So that's how we address access issue with STD PCOs in early days. And also build smaller electronic exchanges like rural phone exchanges opposed to big urban. So we had a completely different model than the rest of the world. And uh, Sam, after pioneering the communication and the IT revolution, now you're calling for yet another revolution of sorts and you think that there is a need to reset the whole world. The new book, which is called Redesign the World, a global call to action, seems to have a very lofty vision. Why do you think there is a need for something like this? Because I believe connectivity is the core of human civilization. I think connectivity is part of community building. And if there is no community, there is no life. So today with hyper-connectivity, everything around us is changing. It is no longer the kind of connectivity that we built in India in the early days for telephones. It is about video, data, integrated services. And it is all about content 
in context along with connection. So one aspect of hyperconnectivity is connectivity, content, and context. So a lot of things could be globalized and localized, regionalized and in multiple languages. Two, hyperconnectivity basically democratizes information and democratizes knowledge. So a little kid in Orissa can now go visit Guggenheim Museum, see what is going on in Paris, take a course from MIT without going anywhere, listen to people like you on podcast. So one part of that is democratization of information. Second part is decentralization of execution. Now we can begin to push implementation further away. You don't need a centralized approach. You need decentralized approach because everybody is empowered. The cell phone it now becomes a window to the world. It is no longer a phone. It is my window to the world. It is my lifestyle manager. Okay. And the third is demonetization of services. Telecom is almost free. Tomorrow energy is going to be free. Transportation is Uberized. Hotel is converted into Airbnb. So everything is transforming in a very subtle way. Businesses are changing. Products are changing. Processes are changing. Retail is changing. The way we buy things are changing. And it will have huge implications on education, health, and governance. I believe democracy is going to change because of hyperconnectivity. So when I look at hyperconnectivity, I realize that the old design that we had created just about the time I was born in 1942 doesn't work anymore. That design gave birth to UN, World Bank, IMF, NATO, WTO, WHO. That design also promoted GDP, GNP, per capita income. That design is 75 years old. Then world was bipolar. You had a Soviet Union with one set of values and systems and US with another set of values and systems. US designed the system. So their idea was to promote democracy, human rights, capitalism, consumption, and military. In last 75 years, we have not created any new global institution of any substance. And lots of things have happened in last 75 years. The world got decolonized completely, led by Mahatma Gandhi, one by one, like a domino effect. The whole world got decolonized. The design did not take that into consideration. Then rise of China, fall of Soviet Union, fall of Berlin Wall, rise of technology, hyperconnectivity, transport, energy, infrastructure, health-related technology. Simultaneously, inequality increased because very few people became very rich and lots of people remained poor. And finally, COVID-19. So I call these seven tipping points. COVID-19 tells me that everything is interconnected, interwoven, interrelated, interdependent. What happens in one part of the world affects all of us. There is nothing local and there is nothing global. Everything is mixed up. Everything is connected. So I think the fact that on one hand, hyper-connectivity offers unique opportunity to redo everything. And Corona crisis gives us this opportunity. So I was basically in self-quarantine for 14 months at home. That's the time I decided to write this book. I used those 14 months to finish the book. And the idea is that we need new thinking. Because everything we do today is basically obsolete because of hyperconnectivity. And we got to start with the fact that we need to redesign the world, lift humanity to the next level. So to me, Corona crisis says not only that we are all interconnected, but there are only two things that matter in life, planet and people. Until we design the world to handle these two large issues, we cannot lift humanity to the next level. Today, there are two visions of the world. 
American vision, which is to continue with the design we have. And then there is a Chinese vision, which focuses on their Belt and Road Initiative, where China can go to some kind of economic collaboration, cooperation with the country, control natural resources, and be a powerhouse. Both of these visions are based on command and control. When hyperconnectivity says we need a networking vision, where we network group of nations, and we focus on communication, collaboration, cooperation, and co-creation, and not command and control. It's a totally different thinking. Um, some of the ideals that you mention in your book, you know, you talk about nonviolence, peace, and prosperity for all. It seems like a reflection of the daily prayer that we say, right? Sarve bhavantu sukhinaha. How much are you influenced by the Indian texts? Well, I'm Indian, so you can't take that away from me. It's in my gene. It's in my soul. But I don't think there is anything Indian about it. It is more human. And what I'm saying is not rocket science. But it is coming from my heart and not from my mind. I don't have data and analysis and graphs and charts and statistics to prove things. I don't have 100 references from this global expert and that global expert. I did not want to write a book like that. I wanted to write a book that came from my soul. You also started something called Act for Bharat last year, right? The group we have now, we have about 30, 40 people of which normally 20 people show up every week, where we spend 60 to 90 minutes every week on Thursday evening India time to talk about larger issues that affect India. We started with conversation on COVID and had all kinds of topics covered. But finally, we came to conclusion as a group that we ought to focus on three main things. One, civil society. We believe the role of civil society has been undermined. And civil society has a much bigger role to play in a country like India, not only to improve governance, but also to deliver education, health, worry about our environment, water, sanitation, education, you name it. And India has had a long history of good civil society. A lot of that has been challenged. Civil society people are harassed. And they should be part of the governance so that government, business, and civil society work together. Today, government and business work together. Civil society has no role. Second, scientific temper. We believe India needs more focus on science and scientific temper. We cannot have people promoting, you know, cow's urine as the solution for COVID. We just cannot allow that. But that goes on. Leaders talk about it and get away with it. So we have to promote scientific temper, which include rational thinking, logical approach, ability to argue, discuss, reason, and search for truth. That's what science is all about. And we see a lot of lies promoted, even by leaders, a lot of ghost gossip, personal attacks in windows. You cannot build a nation like that. And the third topic is really about institution building. We believe our institutions are being captured one by one, whether it is judiciary, election commissioner, university. I mean, how many university vice chancellors have the autonomy they need? Media is not that independent. So to have a good functioning democracy, we need civil society, scientific temper, and robust institutions. So we have conversations going on in these three areas. We have done a position paper on civil society and on uh, scientific temper. We had a press conference. And we want to broaden that conversation and deepen that conversation now. In the past, you headed the National Knowledge Commission. There was a National Innovation Council also that you were heading. At this point, what do you think India can be doing to take leadership of innovation in science and technology? I think we cannot take any leadership on innovation 
until we build our institutions. Let me give you an example. When the new government came to power, I personally took the initiative. I called Mr. Modi, who is Gujarati friend. I respect him. He was the chief minister of Gujarat and he was very kind and talked to me. Then I went to his office and met with the secretary. And I said, please continue with innovation council, not with me, but get new people, but don't abolish innovation council because innovation is important part of India's growth. <clears throat> First thing they did is abolish innovation council. I was very disappointed. But what it means is that innovation requires different thinking. It requires you to challenge status quo. And they don't want any challenge. They don't want any new thinking. That is the message I got. So I realized, I said, it's okay. That's their privilege. People voted them in power. So they are entitled to do whatever they want to do. But for innovation, you need open mind. You need dialogue. And you cannot do this with command and control. That's the fundamental difference. Do you think you would have been able to make um, more of a contribution in India had you remained uh, political? You know, you joined the Congress party and now you're a congressman. No, I don't think, I don't think it's a political issue. You tend to make everything political, okay? Was uh, Vikram Sarabhai political? Was uh, Baba political? Was uh, Korean political? Of course, I'm federalized political because I believe in the ideology more so than party. I believe in democracy. I believe in human rights. I believe in working for the poor. I believe in science and technology. I believe in open communication. Okay. I don't believe in religion. I don't believe in, you know, dividing communities. I don't believe in authoritarian attitude. Okay. So don't make me political. Fine. If you want to do that, that's your privilege. I have nothing against it. Okay. But think of what I stand for. Think of what I did. When we built Telecom, we didn't worry about whether he's Muslim or Hindu, rich or poor, urban or rural educated or uneducated. It was for everybody. We did same thing on technology missions, rural drinking water, immunization, okay, cooking oil, milk production. Those were all fundamental ideas which were based on technology. Maybe you can say those were political, but to me, those were developmental issues. And in order for me to implement developmental issues, I need political base. I cannot do it. I cannot go join hands with somebody who believes in religion for development. I cannot do it because that is against my idea of India. So a lot of people say, oh, why didn't you help BJP government and all that? I said, look, it's nothing to do with BJP or anybody. It has to do with the idea of India. How could I be scientific mindset with scientific mindset and believe in spreading lies? I can't do that. No way. Even if somebody paid me 100 million bucks, I won't do it. So why would I do it for power? It's a personal thing. Again, you don't have to agree with me. You are entitled to have your views. I'm entitled to have my views. So don't you think there's any middle ground for technologists, you know, between getting involved in politics and contributing to a change or a development in the country? No, it's a matter of, you know, politics is, I didn't want to, you know, contest election. There's a fundamental difference. I offered, I was offered many times Rajya Sabha seat. I said, no, but I still believe in Congress ideology. I believe our founding fathers had a clear idea of the kind of India they wanted to build. And I subscribe to that. Okay. And that's why I believe in Congress. Your life story is so incredible. And I hope it could be the subject of another interview. But I do want you to know, and I sincerely say that, that I'm just an ordinary guy, you know, born and raised in a small little tribal village. My father had fourth grade education, but I had an interesting journey. And um, I don't equate success to money or fame or name. I don't care. You know, I'm a family man. You know, I'm a very simple guy. I like simplicity. I don't go to clubs. I don't play golf or I don't do anything. You know, I just do my work and I, you know, enjoy my family and friends. 
and I have no big hobbies. I don't spend money. I don't wear fancy, you know, anything. Not important to me. That's the kind of life I like. And I learned that from Gandhi. And Gandhi has been my hero on one hand. And Einstein has been my hero on the other hand. Because he could imagine wild things. Mm-hmm. And Gandhiji taught me to put my feet on the ground. And I lived with these two heroes in mind. And they've helped me whenever I was in difficult times. It's certainly a very, very impressive life. And uh, I'm very happy that you could join us and share your thoughts on a variety of subjects. Thank you so much. Sandhya, thank you for the opportunity. You can also view the interview as a video on the Raintree Media YouTube channel. Until I'm back next week with another interesting guest. Take care and bye-bye. Do subscribe to the Raintree Media channel on YouTube. Like, comment and share the videos.